12th to the 308th episode of the Jamie Delaney Plant-Based Wellness Podcast. My name is Jamie Delaney, and I'm your host. I'm a plant-based cardiologist and endurance athlete living in Southwest Florida. Welcome, and thank you for listening. Well, on Wednesday, Addie Meinerich and I completed our third Zoom conference on summertime fun foods. We, we pulled it off. We went back and forth four different times with four different entrees. We started out with carrot dogs and baked beans. We did a pasta salad, a kale lentil rice salad. We did a beef burger. We did a bean burger. We did brown bean brownies, black bean brownies, I'm sorry, and a lemon tart and back and forth and talked about the nutritional aspects of that. And what actually hit me during that uh, talk and as we were preparing for it was not that what we made was it was healthy, um, but the shift between how unhealthy traditional summer food is and how healthy it could be is amazing. If you take, you know, hot dogs, for instance, the salt, the, the carcinogens associated with the nitrosamines, the fat, the cholesterol, and then you look at the anti-cancer properties of carrots and sourdough bread and the probiotics associated with sauerkraut and the nitric oxide potential in beets and kale and the nutrients in a colorful pasta salad without the mayo, without the fat, without the cholesterol, without the eggs. It is an amazing shift that you can make and still have a great time. And I hear it all the time. People say, oh, you know, I don't eat that very often, or we only eat this once in a while, and we only pig out once in a while, and for the most part, we're low-carb, and we avoid sugar, or we avoid fat, and but then when you start talking to people, it's more than just a little bit. It's something bad but different every day. And when I say bad, you know, maybe it's not horrible, but it's the associated toxicities um, of some of the ingredients, the metabolic waste associated with it, the oils associated with it, and the lack of health promotion that's associated with it. It's not just that we eat bad things, it's that we miss the opportunity to eat good things and actually make ourselves healthier. Because if we go by what Hippocrates says, food, let food be by thy medicine, and exercise is one of the best pills that we can, that we can get. When we don't do it, we're, we're, it's opposite of not just you know, just taking in something bad or being sedentary, but we're missing the opportunity to actually gain health. In our weekly nutrition classes, we do two, one on Mondays and one on Friday. I not only, I prepare some dish and I try to make it something um, that's not ordinary or something, and something that people would like to try or could share with their families. Uh, for instance, today we did hearts of palm calamari. Um, or again, you know, a lentil kale rice salad or a version on a pasta salad. But we do different different dishes. And, and part of that is to challenge the people in the class to think how they could make their food more healthy and to give them the confidence to prepare healthy food for their families. But the other thing that we do is we talk about mobility and movement and exercise and how that will make us 
more likely to retain muscle mass, retain flexibility, to retain stability over time. And we talk about the science behind the food so that perhaps when they're asked questions by people that aren't plant-based, since about 95% of the world or greater isn't plant-based predominantly, that they can answer the questions intelligently and have an argument that makes them feel good. I'm not an advocate of going into a room and telling people how they should eat, but I do want to be able to defend my choices or support what I do with, with good factual knowledge and be confident in what I eat is going to make me healthy and, and confident in what I suggest other people is going to make them healthy for and, and, and know the science behind it. So I, I want to teach that to the people in, the, in our classes as well. But sometimes I got to tell you that I'm not sure how much people really want to know. I know sometimes I geek out on science too much and get too nitty-gritty detail on the biochemistry of something, or perhaps maybe push people into movements and exercises that they don't have any desire to do. And it comes a fine line of what do I present and, you know, where do I draw the line? And, you know, it's my thought that I should always push people outside of their comfort zone, but... Just like anything, you can push people too far outside of their zone and, and they completely shut down or don't want to do it at all. So there's a fine line between educating people and challenging them and turning them off. After all, we're all different and we all have different objectives and goals that we would like to meet. And, you know, I can't necessarily always put my desires on people and I'm probably an outlier when it comes to what I want to do um, as far as my movement and mobility. I always think of myself being younger and wanting to do things at an advanced age that continues to keep me mobility. I'm not willing to give a lot of things up just because I'm getting older. But as I look around at my extended family and see how they've lived their lives into older age, and if you look around in the airport and you look around at restaurants, there's a lot of things that I don't hold in common with people. Um, you know, there's a lot of people that are happy riding the trams or the, or the push carts all the way to the airport ramp and getting on the plane seat and having their fast food and getting off and having somebody wheel them and their bags to, to the, you know, the taxi or the bus station and, and you know, being picked up and going. I remember when I was younger and we would have family reunions in the summertime. The kids would play and the adults would sit and eat meal number one and sit around and talk about the old times and then eat meal number two and then everybody would finally clean up and go home and, and that was about the size of it. There were uh, a few of the adults that would participate, mainly the younger adults that would participate in some pickup games with you know us kids, but for the most part... Uh, the adults sat around and the, and the kids uh, played and did their thing and there, there wasn't much, much interaction. I also remember going to our cottage when I was young and my mom cross-country skied and there was a family that lived nearby and, that had a volleyball court and we would play volleyball for hours on end and the age group, age range of those volleyball games on the weekend would, you know, would range from 7 to 75. 
and the 75-year-olds were as active and as aggressive as uh, the 20 or 30-some years old. So there was a wide variation in what people do. When Addie got married and we had a flash mob and we got my dancing teacher from when I was a child to help us out, uh, in our in our routine, she was still quite active dancing, and she could still do a split. So there's a wide variation of what people want to do or or seem possible. And I think that you know what I want to, I guess, explain or encourage in people is that to be able to do some of those things, it just doesn't happen. You have the genetics to do some of those things. You have to prepare for them, and. The more we sit around and and eat and don't do things, and you know, especially with COVID, it's it's really made a big change in people. People have been locked down, stuck in their houses, not going outside, not exercising, getting food delivered to them, um, gaining weight, not you know, again, not doing much in the way of outdoor activities or exercising. In some instances, some instances, people are going out and. And, and doing those things and, and using COVID as a reason to go places as far as, you know, trails and outdoor activities. But for the most part, I think there's a huge lockdown um, and isolation. And I suspect that there's been a big decline in people since the lockdown as far as, one, their desire to go and push themselves and a new comfort level with getting things delivered and eating around the TV and not going and getting groceries and carrying them in and not doing a lot of meal prep. So I, I think that um, the potential there is is we've lost a lot. And the question comes now that the restrictions are, are being lifted. And there are a lot of people that are flooding national parks and wanting to take their families, younger people. And I think that's just a fabulous, uh, uh, a fabulous sign that, that um, some of the nation's uh, national parks are just you know, overwhelmed with people. I think that's, that's just fabulous. To we finally realized that we can get back, you know, outdoors and seeing what our great country has to offer outside is something that you know would be a blessing that to happen from COVID. But how many people are not really prepared for that now that they've been cooped up inside, and and how are they going to go about, you know, uh, the nutrition associated with eating and training for those things? I've also heard that a lot of people haven't been getting regular checkups. And not that I'm a huge fan of regular checkups, but when people are not in good health and they're not taking their medicine and they're not getting patched up like they were before, then there's an associated decline as well. And that's when we turn to the quick fix. So people want a quick fix weight loss diet that's going to get them ready to, you know, do all the activities that they haven't been doing and... I'm, you know, I, this where I hear the ketogenic diet or restricted carbohydrate um, diets coming in. Roughly 33% of the population has either prediabetes or diabetes, meaning that they can't metabolize carbohydrates appropriately. They're, they have a metabolic disease. 
And that metabolic disease is at the mitochondrial level. And, you know, the real mechanism of diabetes is that we can't get glucose to where it needs to be to be processed into energy because fat is blocking the uptake. But carbs are blamed, carbs are blamed, carbs are blamed. But people that get adult onset diabetes, for the most part, are overweight and they have an excessive accumulation of metabolic waste that's blocking the uptake and is predominantly in the form of fat blocking the uptake of glucose. So when people turn to a ketogenic diet, they're saying, well, you know, it's easy um, when we eat a low-carbohydrate diet and we measure our glucose, it's good. And if you do it for three months, then your hemoglobin A1C will drop like a rock. But the side effect of that is that their lipid panel typically goes through the roof. The cholesterols go through the roof. The triglycerides may go through the roof. But even more importantly, as it has been determined, there is a research at Dr. Milan at the University of Colorado that actually looked at DEXA scans and people on a carbohydrate-restricted diet, ketogenic high-fat diet, actually gain fat mass and lose muscle mass. So over time, if the mechanism for diabetes is fat blocking in the uptake of glucose, when you lose muscle mass and gain fat mass, you're making that condition worse. And I saw a reference today. Um, somebody was talking about just what is a carbohydrate-restricted diet. And not unlike the Mediterranean diet, it varies all over the place. You know, um, when we say eat a plant-based diet, we mean don't eat animals, just eat plants. And it can be any kind of a plant. It can be a grain. It can be a fruit. It can be a vegetable. It's pretty easy. And what you don't eat are animal products. And, it, and it's pretty clear. It's not a 20 grams of this or 30 grams of this. It's just we don't eat animal products. But with a carbohydrate-restricted diet, there are a lot of people put different names on it. And basically because it's so difficult to maintain because it's so restrictive, then people have to make different rules so they can tolerate it. So a kind of modest carbohydrate-restricted diet that you'll lose some weight, uh, but you can still have some fruits and vegetables is 100 to 150 grams carbohydrate. Well, what does that mean? Well, there are 3.5 ounces roughly in 100 grams. So there's 16 ounces in a pound and if you just looked at spinach, one cup of spinach is about 1.1 ounce. So if you get three and a half to, uh, say, six ounces of carbohydrates, then that's not a whole lot of vegetables. You know, people on low restricted carbohydrates say, oh, you get plenty of fruits and vegetables. And that's the, one of the most liberal 100 to 150. But it's still not. It's certainly not six cups of nitric oxide producing greens a day. It's certainly not a colorful plate of bright, you know, different colors of fruit and watermelon and so forth. So that, that becomes very restrictive. And then if you actually take it down for more weight loss, now we're back to down to 50 to 100 grams of carbo or, uh, carbohydrate total a day. And then a true ketogenic diet to enter ketosis is less than 50 grams of carbohydrate a day. So that takes it down to, you know, greens, some kale, and low glycemic veg uh, fruit such as berries, strawberries, a few blueberries here and there. 
So that, you know, that is extremely restrictive. And it kind of, um, then, then people start to do a, you know, different take on it as far as, you know, um, well, we'll do a targeted ketogenic diet. So you can have a small amount of carbohydrates around workouts. So if you work out three times a week, then we're going to let your carbohydrates slip up. There's no athlete that wants to perform at a high level that can eat a ketogenic diet. They may train so that they can use better fat, and but there's no athlete that's going to perform on a professional level eating fat because they can't get enough ATP or they can't get enough energy quick enough. You need glucose and carbohydrate for that. So it's not meant for someone that does an explosive activity, a Tour de France rider or a sprinter or a, a swimmer, you know, short, regular distance swimmer, you know, to compete. You can't do that on a ketogenic diet. So they have to have some carbs around their exercise. And that kind of should tell you something right there. If what you can't do your activities of daily living, eating a particular way, then perhaps it's not the right way to eat. And then there is a cyclic ketogenic diet, um, which you do ketosis most days or a ketotic diet, less than 50 grams. But then you have cheat days uh, of high carbohydrate for, you know, a couple days a month or a couple weeks at a time, you know, depending on, on, the rule, on the rules of all this. So what does that actually do to you? Well, you're on the ketogenic diet and low, if you're eating low carbohydrates and low fruits and vegetables, you're eating low fiber, which leads to constipation, which leads to um, a, a change in your microbiome for bacteria that are more... Um, able to handle decaying material more inflammatory. So you're doing this, you know, back and forth, back and forth uh, with your microbiome. You're not getting the phytonutrients in the, in, in the antioxidants that you're supposed to be getting. So we're setting ourselves up for, for all kinds of this balance of, you know, first we're ketogenic, then we're uh, eating carbohydrates. And, it, and it's really a setup. How are we going to get our uh, nutrients to try to protect ourselves from cancer. Um, how are we going to reverse heart disease if we're not getting our nitric oxide producing greens on a regular basis? And again, back to performance. How are you going to perform um, if there's, and that can be mental performing as well because our brain really wants carbohydrates, uh, specifically glucose. It will run on lactate, but we need some form of glucose to, to operate our brain. So it's really hard for me to understand why anybody would want to do this other than to lose weight. There is a thing called intermittent fasting um, that people eat, you know, they eat a lot of fat. And I understand people can eat fat and they're full, you know, the butter coffee or whatever, and they're eating these high fats, so they're full and they lose weight. But again, at the same time, they're you know, becoming inflamed and people will do the restricted eating and it's like, okay, well, you can take branch changed amino acid and that helps you not to get hungry as well. But we know that branch chain amino acid actually upregulate mTOR, which is a enzyme of aging an enzyme associated with increased risk of cancer. People with breast cancer, prostate cancer, people with dementia have high levels of mTOR. So it's not something we want in the long term. So the question is, are you willing to sacrifice in the short term to lose the long term? And 
I guess, unfortunately, human nature as it is, we want what we want, we want it now, and we don't save for the future or look to the future, but I think that when it comes to our health, we, we have to kind of look at the end game. How do you want the last years of your life, how do you want the last 20 or 30 years of your life to be as far as your overall health? Uh, we're really good at patching things up. Uh, I heard a, a patient of another cardiologist in town this week that they, he said he, he proudly boasted that he had um, 13 stents. And that particular cardiologist I know has told people, don't worry about your nutrition, I can just put another stent in. Well, you have three main arteries and then you have some branches. So the fact that the guy got 13 stents in somehow is... Uh, pretty much stacking one stent on top of each other. In the cardiology world, we call that a full metal jacket uh, because the vessels are just chucked full of these little stents to try to hold them open. Um, that usually doesn't need lead to much in the way of quality of life. It leads to being able to sit in a chair and go out to dinner and, I guess, eat what you want and go home and sit in a chair and watch TV and then put your CPAP mask on. But it comes, it comes back to what, what do you really want um, the quality of your life to be and what, do you, you know, what have you dialed it back? What are you willing to accept? Um, I had a traditional cardiology practice until about um, a little over three years ago. And I had a lot of elderly patients that we kept alive a long time that didn't eat very well, and they ate little bits. And you, can, you can look at a typical assisted living patient for the most part and see that. They're given comfort foods, so soft foods, low fiber, high sugar, high fat. But as long as they're not, and maybe they eat little bits of it, maybe they eat a lot, but as long as they're not moving much, they're sitting in a chair, um, going in their wheelchair to go to the doctor's office, going to get food, coming back, going to dinner, coming back, then they can survive quite a long time on medications to keep their blood pressure down and medications to try to regulate their cholesterol and medications to help them sleep and a CPAP machine to, to help them breathe. And ultimately... A lot of them require joint replacements from the sedentary behavior and loss of muscle mass. And most of the time, what gets people, if it's not heart failure, it's falling and not being able to recover from it. So that's that's the choice that that's the choice that we need to think about when we're accepting or not accepting some of the challenges that you know are put forth uh, to us. So, you know, food for thought. Um, you know, again, when I when I look at who who is my target audience, who really wants to take the challenge to reverse things, and you know, I'm quite encouraged by a lot of people that they really want to push themselves. Um, we have people. Uh, my 85 year old uh, patient is going to train for a marathon in January. We have a, our 70, late 70 year, years old uh, gentleman who's training for his marathon. He's race walking. He's actually, advoc you know, uh, looking at techniques and different videos on how to get his technique just, just down. We have people out climbing mountains, um, people that are training for Ironmans races, people that are doing marathons and, and uh, uh, different triathlon races. So... I'm very encouraged for, for people that are they're continuing to challenge. And, and 
I hope that they stand out enough to be able to say, yeah, the bar doesn't have to be low. It doesn't have to be spend your 60s and 70s and 80s in a chair and going to doctor's office. But I, I will guarantee that if you, you know, if people don't make this shift from these high-fat foods, high-cholesterol food, high-carcinogenic foods to more healthy foods, it's not going to happen. This week, um, there have been a couple studies that come out. You know, one, um, it's it's been out for a while that, you know, we're recommending colon cancer screening starts in the 40s as opposed to in the 50s. Nobody's saying don't eat hot dogs and processed meat and red meat and, act, and exercise and stay lean and uh, eat lots of fiber so you can get your gut microbiome. They're not saying that. They're just saying get a colonoscopy or do a Cologar test. And I think that's, that's a terrible, terrible thing to, to put off to people. That If we just find these things early, then things will be okay. It's not. There was another study that came out this week that looked at uh, people that have their first angioplasty. Most, the majority of those people have modifiable risk factors. Well, that's a crazy thing to think that somebody thought that that was amazing, that they didn't have modifiable risk factors. But that doesn't mean anybody's doing anything about it. Um, you know, like my colleague in town is just saying, you know, well, yeah, you have risk factors. You can take these pills, and then we'll put another stent in. But there's alternatives to that. And, um, you know, some people have to be more aggressive than others. But uh, I think that, again, this shift that from terrible food to healthy food, there's this huge advantage, not just getting taking a few bad things out, but putting the good things in. And to look away from, oh, well, I just do that once in a while, to I do this all the time. I think that should be the focus. This is what my focus is. I try all the time to eat healthy, and I look at things, and I'm mindful to say, is this going to make me more healthy? Or is this the potential to make me less healthy? And is that something that I'm willing to choose to do for a short-term gain? I think the other thing that is not being told to patients is like take your diabetic medications. And if your hemoglobin A1C is, you know, controlled less than six and a half, then everything's going to be okay. But None of that has ever been shown to decrease the secondary side effects of diabetes, such as heart disease, vascular disease, blindness, kidney disease. But more than that, the functional capacity of a diabetic, and again, remember, so 33% of the population is either pre- or diabetic, and that's the same amount of people that all have this energy problem, this mitochondrial dysfunction that they can't adequately use glucose. And when Dr. Malone looked at... He looked at a group of diabetics, a group of cyclists, and a group of um, uh, professional cyclists, and a group of fit individuals. And what he noted was that, you know, cyclists are some of the fittest people on earth, professional cyclists. They ride for long periods of time at a high level. And they were able to achieve a power output uh, in this particular study of 320 to 360 watts before they started to accumulate lactic acid and, you know, um, what we call an anaerobic threshold. Fit people were down to 150 to 170 watts that they could sustain. And diabetics were all the way down to 80 to 100 watts. And when you're looking at power output, 80 to 100 watts. So basically, when 
a diabetic would go out for a casual ride, they were already exceeding their mitochondrial's ability to utilize carbohydrate or to utilize fat, and they were burning only carbohydrate. And so to be able to go out and enjoy yourself for extended periods of time, we have to change the metabolic function of the mitochondria. And that comes with not only training, but changing body composition. And, you know, I stress that to my diabetics all the time that, again, in, in mitochondrial dysfunction not only affects the diabetic, but then we start to see the risk factor for cancer, um, the risk factor for dementia, because, again, we're, we're trying to process fat, process carbohydrate, process and, and use energy. So, you know, one of the things that we're, we're having people do is to, you know, train long and slow. And, and we want people to be able to do this lack, level two or zone two exercise for prolonged periods of time so that they can start to train their mitochondria to be able to use fat instead of glucose. The other thing that we want is strength training so that we can maintain muscle mass. And again, that's another reason to avoid the ketogenic diet. We don't want to lose muscle mass. We lose it anyway as we age. But if you're doing a basically starvation diet, you're going to lose the muscle mass unless you're doing some significant strength training. So we want people to strength train and maintain their their mobility, their posture, their stability, and maintain this mitochondrial function uh, by maintaining muscle mass. So, you know, again, comes back to summertime and out for summertime fun. And people say, you know, it's just going to be summer and we're just going to do this once in a while and we're just going to have this once in a while. You know, keep a log. It's not just once in a while. It's a little bit of something all the time. Um, You know, we, again, just went over a a certain takeout restaurant, a a soup that they had over a gram of salt for just, you know, a small portion of, of soup. That's that salt accumulation, the fat accumulation that when you go out, you know, and go out and eat, even if it's once in a while and it's a different restaurant, it it really adds up over time. So I hope that you can um, enjoy some of our uh, summertime food, plant based foods and uh, maintain that uh, look, look for the color in your plate all summer long. As you know, summertime is my favorite fruit time of the year because it is mango season. And part of my running right now is going and taking my hydration vest and going to the neighbors where I'm allowed to pick mangoes and getting two or three mangoes and bringing back every morning. So I'm enjoying different varieties of mangoes every day. Our papaya trees have papayas. Cherry season is uh, all over the United States. Uh, Watermelons cantaloupes honeydews so there's a variety of different fruits that are available now so try to try some different varieties of of fruit and you know increase your fruit for breakfast it's a great way to get going and a great way to get your energy starting so enjoy healthy summertime food and if you want some help go on over to drdelaney.com d-o-c-t-o-r-d-u-l-a-n-e-y and you can find out how you can become a member of our practice and learn how to eat healthy Learn how to move healthy and um, figure out what you can train for, uh, you know, even if it's training to be 80 or 90 and moving. And, you know, don't, don't be pressured into eating unhealthy food. 
uh, during your summer vacations or your summer picnics or reunion and and take the time to shine. Show your show your family and friends just how great it is to eat plant-based and colorful and show them some of the colorful dishes that are out there that you can make and how good they feel and lead by example by looking good and moving good and you know so enjoy your summer and enjoy it healthy. Um, having a good time doesn't mean that you have to succumb to junk foods and unhealthy lifestyles. So get out there and be healthy. Get some fresh air, sunshine, move your body, sweat a little bit, and push the envelope as far as your plant-based nutrition choices. Thanks for listening. Oh, and don't forget, if you're looking for some good coffee, go to groundsandhounds.com. Get some fresh coffee sent to you. Use the code Sophie Says. Get some discounts. Again, thanks for listening.